Hello, everybody. This is Michael Mudcat Ward speaking to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you are listening to Talking Blues. Over the years, we probably had more conversation about baseball than about the blues. Where does your love of baseball come from? I got my interest in baseball from my father. He would take us out of school, my younger brother and myself. We would get a day off of school and drive down to Boston from Maine, where I lived, and we would uh, spend the whole day going to Fenway Park and having a, you know, a holiday in one day. And that was a real treat for us. And we would do that, you know, annually. And uh, everything was, uh, you know, the 60s were not a good time for the Red Sox or anything. So we'd go <laughs> down and watch them lose and uh, eat out and come home. And uh, it was a, a time that we really enjoyed together. You know, us, us in a rainy, empty stadium was often the, uh, the way it looked. <laughs> so somehow... He always chose a rainy day. Well, my father would buy the tickets in advance. Right. And in those days, he did, you know, he would just write a letter and put it in an envelope. He would write it by hand saying, please send me uh, three or four tickets behind the Red Sox. Uh, uh, sorry. The bench. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, that would be it. It wouldn't even be specifically, I want section this or that. Just put me behind first base, roughly. And uh, he would put a check in there and, uh, you know, four weeks before the time he wanted to go and and just tell him the day he wanted to go after looking at a schedule. <laughs> wow. And it worked out fine. I mean, you could always move up, move forward a little bit, too, back then. It was really never crowded. Did you have a favorite player? I liked catchers, so I liked Bob Tillman, but uh, the only star on that particular team was Bill Mumbuquet, a pitcher. Did you ever play yourself? I played in uh, a boarding school because you had to pick a sport in the spring, but I didn't want to play. <laughs> Actually, the truth is I uh, got very uh, disinterested in baseball uh, at the end of the 60s. And when I got interested in music, and also as I got more politically aware, I had problems uh, with the uh, uh, America's pastime being kind of a, um, oh, I don't know, a distraction from what was really happening. You know, it was a political time and, uh, and quite an interesting musical uh, explosion going on. Right. How, how, so how, what brought you back to baseball? Well, my brother stayed interested in it throughout all those teams in the early 70s, you know, with the long sideburns and the uh, uh, 80s and so forth. And I, I just got back into it, especially when I moved down to Cambridge. Um, it's pretty hard to avoid. So when the Red Sox finally won, what did that mean to you? Well, it it's funny, but what it meant to me was, you know, how great for my dad, because he died the, the following uh, spring, and it was really a, uh, it was a, a, you know, just the greatest thing that he got to see the Red Sox succeed. And uh, I, I really, uh, I was glad and, and it was exciting and everything, of course, but uh, 
I, 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 it was more exciting for me for him. Right. Know? I always thought of you as more of a baseball fan than a Red Sox fan. Well, I am. I, I, I turned into one. Um, I went everywhere we would go, uh, traveling on the road. Uh, we would try to make games, uh, major leagues or minor leagues. And that's what I really liked the best. Uh, going to uh, different ballparks and seeing different teams, especially get, getting to see. I mean, today it's different, but they, you know, you could never see National League teams up here. Right. Uh, and 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 then later on you could, but to go, I went to uh, the old Forbes Field and uh, the uh, the old uh, Cincinnati and uh, uh, even in Chicago the White Sox uh, field, the the older right. one, you know. And uh, so I th- that was that was fun for me. You know, I didn't have a quest to go to every park or anything. And a lot, a lot of minor league teams, including in Memphis and in, uh, you know, uh, Iowa, places like that. (laughs) Do you go see any ball games anymore? I haven't been in a, uh, well, actually I went last year, but I haven't really paid to go in a a long time. And uh, the last time I went to Fenway Park, I have to say, I was kind of disappointed with the, uh, all the rock music and the, uh, all the distractions that they were putting on to make it more, you know, fun for the fans. I like that when I go to see the Lowell Spinners, who are, uh, you know, single A team, right. with the uh, beanbag and the races around the uh, between <laughs> innings, and all the, you know, the guys with stuffed pillows in their gut, you know, looking fat and you know all that stuff. Right. I mean, that's part of that whole uh, rodeo clown type of. Uh, minor league stuff i like but uh when 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 they started doing stuff like that at fenway not quite that but it's sort of like you see uh on the nba you know the basketball yeah, yeah. The strobe lights and the whole uh you know it's like uh, to me that looks like uh wrestling you know uh, <laughs> well they're trying to put on a show outside of the game i guess but it's it it takes from the game yeah there's never a quiet moment and uh actually you know it's uh you can't really kind of watch the game it's that much of a distraction in boston it was for me but i was i was i was pretty far out <laughs> in the uh in in the, in the outfield i remember going to um fenway park and sitting on top of the roof for something like just on the first base side but it was like way at the top it was like ridiculous but it was like one of the hottest days and and it was really humid, so it was nice to be up on top because there was a slight breeze. But I remember how humid that day was, and it's a memorable moment to to actually see a game in at Fenway. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's something everybody should try to do. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, um, if you really if you're interested in the game, and the years that I get excited are obviously the years that uh, there's a chance that they can beat the Yankees, and uh, that that has really nothing to do with. Uh, having to be there. <laughs> but if you want to know how little of a fan I guess I am, I don't have cable TV and I don't have the Red Sox channel. So I get my information from Neil Gouvin, the Blue Tones drummer, right. who's a, 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 a staunch Yankees fan. Imagine that. <laughs> so I can only imagine the conversations you guys must have. Well, we uh, get along famously and, uh, you know, that's just one of those things. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of music, tell me how you first got into music. Okay, I've always been interested in music uh, from, as, uh, you know, whenever I was aware that I was alive. I liked music, I liked records, I liked the radio. 
and I like jukeboxes. And I never really uh, understood there was a music business at first. I just uh, knew there was music. Then I realized there were musicians. And uh, my father played piano and played also trombone in the college uh, and high school uh, marching bands. But he was kind of a jazz piano player. He, used, he was a... Uh, uh, a, a big uh, fan of the big bands. Uh, he was a World War II vet, you know, in uh, that era. Right. And uh, he had seen Count Basie and gotten autographs even. Uh, he had seen, uh, you know, Ellington. All the bands would come up and play the pa the piers off of the uh, beaches going right up to Portland, Maine. And uh, in these, uh, he would go down and see these bands and keep track of them and buy the records. Uh, my father had Mingus records and, uh, you know, that's where I kind of got my education actually, when I got started, not really understanding that, uh, this stuff was, uh, you know, the categories or anything for a long time. It took me a while to sort it all out. My mother liked classical music, which didn't interest me too much, but I was taking piano lessons at a young age with a Russian uh, teacher that was trying to teach me uh, um, classical uh, reading music and playing classical pieces. So I had, I had that in my ears too. And uh, also my mother had uh, an interest in kind of a strange interest in uh, she was interested in uh, Peter Paul and Mary when blowing in the wind came out thinking, not really sure that was Bob Dylan and then sent me down to the record store to buy her the original Bob Dylan version, uh, you know, something like that. <laughs> my father brought home the first uh, 45 of the Rolling Stones uh, before I was really that sure who they were. Who they were. Uh, you know, everything was kind of just sort of uh, serendipity and miscellaneous in the sense that uh, we had uh, – Congratulations. I think that was the 45 and uh, Time's on my side right. before we had seen them on TV. And I don't know how or where he picked that 45 up. But, uh, you know, it was just that's sort of one thing led to another kind of thing. And uh, my brother and I and my sister also, my sister was into folk music. She wanted to be like Joan Baez or, uh, and played an acoustic guitar and uh, did a lot of the... Uh, folk songs of the folk scene that was developed in the uh, early 60s. So uh, we had a little bit of all that stuff going on. When you took um, classical lessons, what did music mean to you? Was it just something that your parents told you to do? Or did you have any connection to learning music at that point? Well, I liked the I liked music. I liked uh, I memorized all the melodies and uh, the uh, styles that I was playing. There were songs I liked and ones I didn't so much. I didn't like practicing that much. And I didn't like, uh, I read, I learned how to read, but she wasn't teaching me keys or chords or anything like that. So I was learning these pieces first, the right hand, then the left hand and put them back both together. And it, it wasn't that pleasant an experience to be, to be truthful about it. Uh, one time she caught me playing from memory instead of reading it because I think he had slipped the uh, book upside down or changed the page or something. And I uh, just continued like I wasn't paying attention. And then she, she basically busted me for uh, not reading and got upset. And she had other students that were like 
you know, bound for the classical music stage career. And uh, I was not one of those uh, <laughs> by a long shot. And after, uh, I think, maybe six years or so, I pretty much gave it up and started playing by ear, which is what I was sort of doing from the get-go. And uh, I would learn songs that I heard on the radio. Uh, there was a lot of country music on the radio. I didn't realize it was a separate genre of music unless I saw them on TV with the cowboy clothes. Right. But, you know, other than that, I didn't really have an idea. I, like I say, I didn't have it all figured out and I didn't have somebody to really explain it all to me. But when I was in junior high, uh, my friend from school who had an older brother uh, had that first, uh, had that Holland Wolf album with the rocking chair. Yeah. And uh, I knew that was something different. And I, and I liked that. And then it was, I need more of this stuff. And it was a constant quest to acquire more records of more blues people. And I liked the, I liked the uh, I, as I got more politically aware as well, I felt very akin to the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, black person in America at that time and the uh, civil rights movement. My mother had us as children marching in uh, in uh, sort of civil rights parades that they had in some of the biggest cities in Maine. Wow. And uh, they had, uh, um, they weren't radical, but they were uh, pretty much in belief of the, uh, the uh, you know, the supposed values that America was supposed to be offering to everybody. And... Uh, they took that seriously. Wow. My father was on a bus, a small uh, small town, Texas. I don't know which way he was going or on leave or just go, going back to a base or whatever. He, he was on a bomber plane in the uh, South Pacific during most of the war, but uh, maybe during basic training or something. And uh, this uh, black soldier also uh, got on at the same stop my father did. And the bus driver, they both sat some, you know, a third of the way into the bus and the bus driver stopped the bus like or didn't even start and said, you know, told that uh, black uh, soldier that uh, in not uh, very nice uh, language, obviously, using the N word and everything that he didn't understand, but he had to get in the back of the bus. Right. And my father was uh, outraged and he uh he just said, you know, this man is a, 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 a soldier of the United States Army and uh, does not, uh, he's fighting for his country and for you and everybody else, and he doesn't need to uh, follow this crap. And uh, they knew my father from his <laughs> accent that he was from Maine, not from Texas, <laughs> you know, and uh, it started to, my father said, then I realized, you know, I was I was kind of very alone on there because uh, nobody was coming to my defense right. or felt the way I did, and they were I think they were just dropped off and told to get the heck, heck hell off the bus and they uh, had to wait for another one and they I don't know what happened exactly he didn't he never really clarified it but he was enraged yeah, I and uh, and I could dig that you know? yeah for sure well your parents sound like really cool people who are really hip and and. And who knew what was going on? Well, that that's pretty much the case. Um, they let me go to Woodstock, and I was like 15 years old. <laughs> that, that I wouldn't have ex understood or expected. Um, I had tried to go to uh, there was a there was all kinds of festivals that summer, and I tried to go to one in uh, Atlantic City because it had BB King advertised. 
And that's the one I wanted to go to. <laughs> and I couldn't go there for some reason. And they, they really hadn't decided that I, I was, you know, at my age, I could go there. And so then when, when the, I missed that one and then Woodstock and I said, oh, come on, you know, I couldn't go to the other one. And uh, can I go? And they said, oh, OK. You know, thinking maybe that upstate New York would be a little safer than uh, I think the other one was might have been Atlantic City. I'm not sure. OK, so what was that experience like? Uh, Woodstock? Yeah, like other than wet and muddy. <laughs> well, it was wet and muddy. I, I actually have to tell you, I mean, it was quite an experience to be a part of these, this, you know, tribal world of hippies and what have you. But uh, musically, I was kind of disappointed. I really wanted a little more blues than I got. I mean, there was Canned Heat. Paul Butterfield's band didn't play much blues. Um Arlo Guthrie, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of what I uh, wanted, and I, right. I I had already seen Jimi Hendrix uh, with the experience in Lewiston, Maine. He blew my mind. <laughs> uh, at Woodstock, it was great too, and I did see him, but uh, it was a different band, and I kind of almost felt like, you know, they were a little bit hotter in the old uh, in the trio. Wow. Um. So, you stayed till the very end, then? I did. I did. And what was getting home like? Well, I, I rode up with this fella that had a car and rode back with him. Uh, it wasn't a problem. Oh, okay. So did you starve for the three days while you there? Uh, or did, was there enough food for you? Well, we didn't really... <laughs> the, the truth is, we didn't really bring food to eat, but we uh, managed to find stuff. The uh, hog farm gave out uh, cereal and... Uh, my friend bought a watermelon. I think it was like five dollars for one watermelon, which he thought was like paying a hundred bucks for one, <laughs> and uh, carried it like ten miles. But we, wow. uh, but the guy that was driving the car <laughs> was—he was the son of a my parent, a friend of my parents. Right. Was part of perhaps their their reason to lenient let me with leniency let me go, and what happened was. He was a strange cat, and he filled his trunk with trash bags of bagels, and he had a Coleman, uh, one of those gas stoves, yeah. and he had an Arab costume, and he was going to dress up as an Arab and sell, sell the bagels. This was his plan. He didn't know what Woodstock was any more than I did, but he thought it was going to be a crowd of people, and if he was either going to try to get a booth or a stand somewhere or walk around but he was gonna <laughs> he was gonna sell bagels and make a killing that was his thing what happened was when we got there uh he the, all the bagels tasted like gasoline because the coleman stove had leaked uh. <laughs> so we ate a we ate one or you know or split one and said oh man this is bad this tastes like gas you know you can't sell these so he just left him in his trunk. He didn't tell him. And he gave up his uh, entrepreneurial plan. Which <laughs> yeah, I, a, oh, I just wanted to say, Marco, I, I was not a, par a party to that, and I was not a, a partner. <laughs> These are not the Woodstock stories that one hears all the time. No, and no one would know because it, didn't, it you know, never uh, went to fruition. Yeah. I did meet uh, my brother's late wife, May Kramer, who was a blues DJ, uh, years later in Boston on the NPR, uh, uh, a GBH uh, station, right. May Kramer, she was with the hog farm giving out that uh, 
the uh, the the um, granola that we were eating. Really? Yeah, and there there are photographs of her doing it. <laughs> but you didn't. I mean, there was no connection back then. No, none at all. That's crazy. Yeah. Is what's your brother's name? Peter. Peter Hyde. Okay. He's a musician that's on some recordings too. You might. Right. Okay. So in the discography, it's not Peter Ward though, right? Yes. Yeah. It is. Oh, okay. So when in the discography that you sent me, that you've obviously recorded with your brother. I have quite a bit, and with wow. Sugar Ray has, and uh, my brother played with uh, uh, the legendary blues band, you know, Portnoy and Pop yeah, yeah, yeah. and them uh, for quite a spell after they had left Muddy and were looking for a guitar player. Wow. After Lewis Myers left, I think. Okay, so how did you get into the blues? I mean, you got into the blues from the Howlin' Wolf album, but how did you get into playing the blues? Well, I was uh, seeing blues as it you know slowly filtered up into Boston, Maine. Uh, I would drive down to Boston, hitchhike down to New York City to see Junior Wells. Uh, we would... Uh, make all kinds of treks to see uh, the blues artists that were around. I saw Freddie Bilo. I saw, uh, uh, you know, traveling musicians. And uh, this, this just, you know, it just hit me over the head. This is what I want to do, and this is what I like. And I, I acquired more records and saw more artists and had seen B.B. King. And um, it became, a, it became a, you know, my world. Uh, and the great thing about it, I mean, the really amazing thing was uh, you you could go up there and talk to uh, Carrie Bell or Jimmy Rogers or and introduce yourself. And um, as frightening uh, that, as that might seem, you could. Uh, and if you could, you could sit in. And if and if you could play uh, the way uh, like. I was treated and Ronnie Earl and uh, the people that I knew coming up playing this kind of music, the way we were treated was uh, it, really phenomenal. And uh, it really, uh, there's, there, there's really no explanation or description about it that can, can kind of uh, let you know how uh, remarkable it actually was. Both the, uh, the, uh, uh, racial divide, the time, the time, uh, you know, the times that it was, and the uh, kind of uh, economic situation involved, the glaring, uh, you know, dis, dis, uh, dichotomy that it was, uh, young white kids trying to play blues, and old black guys finding out that they're uh, all of a sudden got some gigs, uh, some lucrative gigs working out that they didn't have for the last decade. You know, things, things were. <laughs> Shifting, shifting. At that point, was the audience pretty well all white young kids? It was where I was, but it right. wasn't in Chicago. Right. And it wasn't in Texas and some other places. But yes, once you got to the, this festival mode, and that became a blues festivals, you pretty much had uh, what, you know, it was pretty much a, a white enterprise. And when you thought, well, I want to do this, at that point, what was your playing like? Okay, my playing. Now, <laughs> I started out on the piano, you know, going right from uh, Mrs. Chance's piano lessons to uh, learning stuff on my own and uh, playing with some other guys that wanted to play blues. Right. Then I, uh, this is about uh, 69, 1970, by... Uh, 
uh, at that time, I, I find I, I'm going to a boarding school for the first time. Um, not really uh, forced to go, but my parents said, you know, your choice is Lewiston, Maine High School or, uh, you know, a school where you can probably be challenged a little bit. And I, 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 I agreed to go. I got into Phillips Exeter in New Hampshire and I uh, picked that school out of a few others that I had a choice to go to because when I toured the school, I saw all these Fender amps behind this curtain in the music building. <laughs> and that, that was the decision maker? That was for me. Uh, I mean, the decision was first there, the school was to allow me to, you know, to accept me, uh, yes. you know, but, uh, that was my, how I made the choice. And I brought my electric piano, packed my, uh, clothes and went to school in September and looked around for some guys to play with. The first guys I found were, were a rock band. They were trying to be like the Grateful Dead or something. And I, you know, was jamming with them because that that's the only guys I could find. It was a pretty big school. You know, there might've been, I think, uh, 800 kids, but, uh, being a, uh, a sophomore or what they called a lower, I had to, uh, go to, uh, check into my dorm at 8 PM and the kids that like the seniors and the kids that were playing music were out till 10. I couldn't even play with them if I wanted to <laughs> on a weeknight. So, Anyway, I do come across these. Everybody says, "Hey, did you see uh, you know Rob Aberg and those guys? Uh, they're playing. Uh, you know, they're over at the music building. Why don't you go over there and take a look? These guys, I think they're playing blues. We don't know what blues is, but you say you like it. I think these guys think they're playing it. You know, <laughs> and uh, there really wasn't a lot of uh, understanding about what blues was in some places back then. And uh, I go over there and." Uh, yeah, these guys are playing blues. The guitar player's from Texas, and he sounds great. And the drummer's from Philadelphia by way of California, and he sounds great. And uh, there I am uh, uh, seeing if I could play. And I'm watching this piano player that they have, and he's fantastic. This guy is one of the best blues players I have seen on the piano. And I'm like, you know... <laughs> Figuring I've got no uh, no place here, and they you know they introduced themselves and everything. And the fellow on the piano was Ben Ben Tench Ben Mark right. Tench. He was uh, Tom Petty's piano player later on. Yeah, and uh, one of the heartbreakers. And uh, he was great back then in high school, a year ahead of me. And he said, uh, "We need a bass player." If you go back at Thanksgiving and take that electric piano and, and, and swap it for a bass, an electric bass, you got the gig. <laughs> and that made good sense to me somehow. And I did it and it worked out. And I came back and I had a gig the next week with those guys playing. Okay. Well, but, but you just, had you played the bass ever before? No, I hadn't. <laughs> but it really, it didn't seem that for, for what I wanted to do on it, it seemed uh, pretty straightforward. All had, was it? All I had to figure out was, well, I had to get my hands to work, but all I had to figure out was, bum, 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 you know, at first, slow version or fast version, and, and, and learn what the key notes were, the notes. So if I was in G, I knew to go to G to start and do the same pattern. Right. And uh, that came pretty naturally to me. Um, and uh, I don't think I've really... Uh, 
achieved much more uh, <laughs> sophistication <laughs> on it than that. But uh, that's not true. <laughs> uh, but I did play, and I I liked playing, and I uh, had a good I had a good sense of time, I guess. And uh, the drummer was steady, and um, it was great. But it's a very different instrument, and I would presume that the approach to playing a piano versus playing a bass is a very different mindset. Well, you know, uh, to me, whichever instrument you ended up trying to blow through or pluck on or bang on, or, uh, you could you could uh, make a good case for saying you were playing blues through it or with it or you know in, yeah. in spite of it maybe in my case but it was uh so i i could pick up an instrument that i've never played before and makes at least i felt at the time i could make some kind of blue statement with it now i had a lot of uh familiarity with otis span and uh pine top and uh roosevelt sykes as well as uh, ragtime players and uh, all kinds of piano players. Fats Waller was a, a big uh, interest of mine in high school. And uh, I uh, loved stride piano. I loved a barrel house. I loved all that stuff. I loved guys with, you know, eight fingers. I I loved uh, raw stuff. I liked sophisticated stuff. I liked, uh, I liked it all. And I could, I could, I could hear what was being said. And, uh, it was kind of the same for bass. It was kind of the same for bass. Did you miss the piano at all? I missed the chords in the sense that you could back yourself up. It's pretty hard to play alone on a, on a bass right? and, and do much with it. Uh, I, uh, there are people that can do it. I, I have never been able to uh, do much with it uh, alone. Uh, so I, I, I can play piano and, and, uh, back then I could, I could, I wouldn't say get a paying gig, but I could get a play for drinks gig playing piano and playing, uh, you know, stuff I'd heard on the radio or what have you. And a couple of, uh, uh, sweet, you know, back home in Indiana and, you know, numbers like that. At what point did you think I'm going to pursue this as a career? That came a lot, lot further down the line for me. But it was always your passion to play live. I was playing live every weekend, and I was uh, traveling hard, sometimes 10-hour 10 10 hour drives just to get a chance to play for 40 bucks or even for 25 and a, and a, and a beer and a, a dinner. I wanted to uh, play, but I didn't see it as a real career for me. Then at some point or another, you, you joined, or you had a band with Ronnie Earl, the Hound Dogs, I think. That's true, what? but that's, uh, that's a, a, Way co later? a college career later, you know? I went to college for four years. Right. And during that time, I studied a little more about music, but I was uh, majoring in philosophy. With, with the thought of doing what? Being a teacher or... With the, I didn't really have much thought to it. I guess if I had really figured out what I was going to do, I would have uh, started a record label right then and there. But uh, because I went to Hampshire College, which you could actually devise a, uh, say you could start a company, and that would be the work you would be getting uh, academic credits for. Right. You know, you could break it down into uh, some kind of... Um, accounting uh, problems that you could solve and uh, promotional problems you could solve 
and that kind of thing and break it down into the various uh, areas that they wanted you to, you know, dip your toes into. Right. So if I had really uh, had a little forethought, which I did not, I would have, uh, I would have uh, probably done that. And I'd be, uh, I don't know, successful or a failure at it, but I would have got to somewhat, somewhat in the same place where I would have got to maybe play with or work with Otis Rush and big Walter Horton and Jimmy Rogers. And uh, I got to play with uh, all kinds of people like uh, uh, Cleanhead Vincent and big Joe Turner and I, even Chuck Berry. And, you know, this, this wouldn't have happened to me. Uh, Roosevelt Sykes on piano, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, Lowell Folsom, you know, I play with a lot of people and yeah. uh, that was in due in part for being part of the house band in a band in Cambridge that came later that came after I did meet Ronnie Earl who was Ronnie Horvath back then and uh I saw him at a club called the Speakeasy in Cambridge my brother and I went in there John Nicholas was playing Ronnie was in John Nicholas's rhythm rockers and we uh just liked what he was doing we talked to him we gave him cigarettes for free and then we uh <laughs> finally uh he said uh you guys are musicians, right? And we said, yes. And he said, when do you play next? And we said, this weekend up in Portland, Maine. And he said, I, I'd like to play with you guys. And we couldn't believe he'd want, you know, drive up that far, but he did. And he played with us. Uh, this is how we met, really. So before that, you were in a band with your brother? I was in a band with my brother, yep. And I was in some other bands without him, yep. Mm -hmm. And what was it like playing with your brother? Well, it was fine. We just wanted to play. We wanted to play as much Little Walter as we could. And uh, we had a harmonica player up there, John Shalick, who sang and played harmonica. You know, this was a hard thing to get gigs to play blues when there were all these sort of pop rock bands and um, some psychedelic bands, but a lot of, you know, heartthrob type uh, front guys. And we just wanted to play harmonica, you know, guitar, bass and drums and uh, sound like we were from Chicago or something. And uh, I remember we used to uh, cheat. We would go out to, say, Martha's, uh, not Martha's Vineyard, but uh, Monhegan Island or some of these places, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln, Maine, and uh, we would uh, bring a cassette tape with a, a little Walter record on it and play it for the club manager and tell him that was us. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we still wouldn't get the gig. You know? <laughs> Was it always blues? Like, could you have, did you ever play in a rock band or a country band or? I played in a, uh, I played on some weekends in a country band while I was in college. Uh, Tex Overstreet was the name of the guy. He had a band that played in one of the uh, tobacco sheds. They used to grow the uh, leaves of cigars out there. Right. And uh, he had a one-armed drummer who was great. And uh, they did a lot of Johnny Cash and stuff like that. And uh, they didn't have a bass player. His wife played sort of like a cheesy organ and had a little, uh, an octave of bass notes to play at the, at the bottom of the keyboard, but she couldn't really keep it going. And so they were glad to have me come in there and uh, play. I went in there with a, um, a Kentfield, uh, who was a, uh, a steel guitar player. Uh, I'm trying to think of his first name right now. It's having a hard time with the proper nouns. Uh, he uh, 
became pretty prominent in uh, Texas and, and uh, Tennessee. But in any case, we went and played, and they the band was on this movie called The Reincarnation of Peter Proud. I don't know. Oh, it, I think I saw that movie. There was just a small clip, and they wanted to have a country band playing. So right. they, they took the, the tobacco uh barn where they had a bar and they you know would have it on weekends and they brought in all this hay and sawdust to make it look like a country barn and you know which it had already it was you know but right they hollywoodized it and the weirdest thing was they didn't they wouldn't use me on there i looked too much like a hippie i think but they they had the drum the one-armed drummer and they had him off to the edge of the film so you couldn't see that he only had one arm huh which, I mean, why would you waste a chance like that? But <laughs> interesting. Yeah. What was it like playing with Ronnie in the early years? Well, it was great. We played uh, whatever we were supposed to do. We played three or four hours longer than we were supposed to until they basically <laughs> had to throw us out, close us down, pull the plug, or whatever. We would never. We didn't take breaks like they kind of wanted. We didn't. Uh, we didn't want to stop. We just wanted to play. And uh, after we were done playing, three in the morning or what have you, uh, we would go to our apartment and try to play some more until the cops would come and shut us down sometimes. <laughs> and they would always say, hey, you guys sound great, but, you know, it's 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 4.30. Can you, you know. <laughs> um, then the other person who I presume has played a prominent role in your life um you probably met around that time would be Sugar Ray Norcia. Right. And uh, that was about, I think, uh, 78, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Ronnie and I and Sugar and Neil Gouvin, the drummer, they were from Rhode Island, southern Rhode Island, and we were in the Boston area. So we met in Providence. We got a gig at a place called the Met Cafe. And, uh, you know, that's you do your auditions. You get paid for it if you have a gig. Right. So that's, that, that's how we did it. We would drive down there and uh, make our money to pay the gas to go to get back home. And basically, we had a weekly weekly gigs. And uh, in those days, you know, without uh, everything was long distance phone calls that cost money. You couldn't complain or make plans or do much other than just, you know, see you there. Da, 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 you know, a less than a minute's call. And uh that's how we kind of worked it. Right. Then we would uh, maybe rehearse at sound check if they even had a sound check. But basically, we all knew the same material because we all listened to the same kinds of records. <laughs> and uh, somebody might say, hey, I'm going to try to do this uh, uh, thing that uh, Muddy did, uh, you know, uh, uh, long distance call or something like that. And they, okay. Or Ronnie would just uh, say, uh, how about this uh, Elmore James thing? Cause he was interested in playing Elmore James or he's getting on a T-bone Walker kick and uh, Sugar would throw some lyrics up for that. That's pretty much uh, how we operated. And I have to say it's sort of about a third of the way we still operate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you've known Neil for how long? Neil Gubin, the drummer. Since uh, 70, 78, I think it was. Maybe late 77. I think 78. Wow. Yeah. We're, That's all, we're, all, we're all still working together. I mean, Ronnie, yeah. Ronnie isn't so much with us, but he he played with us, Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones, featuring Ronnie Earl, or Little Ronnie back then. And right. then later on, he joined Roomful of Blues when Duke Robillard left. 
and we maintained ourselves. We uh, hired uh, my brother, and then Jerry Portnoy stole him to do Legendary, and we got Kid Bangham. Uh, we plucked him out of the, the ether because he hadn't played really, and he came to the audition and didn't know uh, blues from uh, anything really, but he could play it, but he didn't know, you know, who Magic Sam was or something like that. Hmm. Uh, and the great thing was I had I had this, uh, my brother, my youngest brother, who's passed away, Jeff, he uh, was in one of those high school abroad programs in right. Spain. So what he wanted to do was book us, which he did. He booked us in Barcelona, Madrid, uh, all, all, all Valencia, uh, all by himself with his, uh, you know, uh, high school Spanish. And uh, we went over there, you know, we bought the tickets and we pretty much covered the uh, costs of playing uh, by, you know, you know, by the gigs. Right. And everything kind of, we were like the first uh, band of our, you know, uh, Between the Thunderbirds, Rolling, uh, uh, Roomful of Blues and that kind of, that generation to go overseas, really. And wow. it was just in Spain, but we played all over. We had a guy we hired, a 65-year-old guy with a truck and a grand piano and a PA system. And we brought over our drums, uh, small amps and equipment. And I bought this transformer at Wurlitz's music store, uh, which I couldn't test out because there was no way to test it out here. But it was this big, heavy thing that I put in a suitcase and we all plugged into it. And then it plugged in with a strange looking uh, adapter plug that plugged into European currency. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> That's crazy. We went over, um, we, some of the gigs, we, we would go uh, right from our little hotel in Barcelona on the Rambles to uh, by subway. We would just hold the doors open until they just came over with the cops and started saying, what are you doing? And we made one of those like fire bucket type of. <laughs> get it down the uh, ele uh, uh, escalator and into the train car, you know? Right. And then, <laughs> then we would get cabs, which were very small cars over there at the time. So we'd put our stuff up on the roof rack. I would get two or three cabs. And then we would, uh, you know, like the jazz clubs we played had grand pianos. And we did very well. We were on television. We were on this show called... Uh, uh, you can stop me at any time here. I'm no, 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 keep going. We were on this uh, television show. I have a tape of it called Music Express. And I remember the man's name, Angel Cassis. He was like the uh, sort of the uh, host of the show. And it was the, the, the incredible thing was that this was the first broadcasted program in Catalonia, which is, you know, Barcelona. Yeah, yeah after Franco died the, that spoke Catalan instead of Spanish on the air. Wow. But this language had been outlawed. Yeah. They were trying to bury it like uh, they tried to bury the Cajun French in Louisiana, you know, not right. allow the kids to speak it at school and that kind of thing. So basically what you had was the bravest guy in the world uh, through a music show um, putting on a Catalan, a Catalan uh you know, celebration, but hmm. the, uh, we weren't all in one place at the same time. So the actual episode we were on had, uh, Bob Marley and Grace Jones and the animals. <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> it was sort of like, we didn't see them because we taped our little segment in a bar before the people came in. 
Right. They didn't want it like an audience, you know. So we did so, two songs and we got spliced into the show. So what's it like playing with Neil for all these years? Like, I, I presume you probably know, as they say, where each other's going before you actually get there. Well, that's true. Uh, I know how he plays and I guess he knows how I play. I would be uh, uh, remiss if I didn't say what a great blues drummer he is and uh, what kind of a unique style that he actually has. But uh, you, uh, you, 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 you play differently as a bass player with different drummers. I do, right. anyway. And uh, he, bring, he, he enables me to do my thing. I prefer, uh, in some cases, he was a loud, very loud drummer for a lot of years. And we never quite got our dynamics under control. And uh, we just wanted to pound it out and play it hard, you know. <laughs> and if you asked Willie Smith, uh, Muddy's drummer, you know, how do you, yeah. what's what's the secret to playing blues? Hit the motherfuckers, you know. <laughs> so uh, everybody would always tell you, play hard, you know, take no prisoners and all that kind of stuff. But actually... The fact is, you know, when the singing comes in, you should bring it down. And when the, uh, you should use the dynamics, the volume control that you have to uh, make it exciting, bring it up, bring it down, you know, work with it. That's another tool that you have. Yeah. And, for the, you know, for the early in the early years, we uh, we didn't pay a lot of attention to that. We uh, just plowed ahead. But I mean, I certainly see that when I see Ronnie Earl these days, and I, you know, I saw certainly have seen that with um, Sugar Ray's band and and the dynamics that you guys use on stage. Well, Ronnie Earl was one that loved to uh, bring it down to the uh, to a whisper, so, mm -hmm. he, so he could go out into the audience and play guitar very quietly and with as much, uh, you know, uh, uh, communicational. Uh, skills that he could put into it you know the power of communicating he understood from the very beginning um and we would certainly accommodate that no problem and if we played with uh somebody like big walter which we did we knew how to you know have quieter verses and you know let him we knew how to play i'm, I'm i don't want to uh, exaggerate it in the wrong way but we were just kind of a plow hard type of band and i've met people that say yeah we love the way you guys played so you know such a strong uh, you know approach well we did have that and uh but we didn't have uh, the finesse on the lighter side that we have more of uh, in this, this day and age what do you think that happened or how did that happen well uh there is a sense where you do <laughs> learn and gain maturity but also uh you can do you can you can you can do things differently when you're uh, older or have been doing it for a while and make things happen in different ways. Right. So I have to say we have not stopped learning. Now I switched from uh, Fender bass to acoustic bass at some point along the line, and uh, because I wanted to, and uh, I had to uh, I had to be able to be heard with an acoustic instrument. And not too sophisticated uh, equipment that would feed back. I had to, uh, you know, to play an acoustic instrument in a loud rock band, say, you have to develop a, a way of doing it. And uh, I did that. But it also took some accommodating on the uh, other guy's parts. 
How different is your playing style between an electric bass and a stand-up bass? Well, I think it's different. I uh, but I can I can do both. I can do the same thing on on both instruments, but I don't usually do that. But I can do it. I like to play a an op more open, airy, uh, more rootsy style with the uh, string bass. I have a lot of uh, country influence. I have a lot of old style country influence. You know, um, Hank and uh, um, left left. Lefty Frizzell or something like that, or uh, right. um, I uh, Ernest Tubb, th that kind of those kind of bass players are like blues players in my mind. And then there's the jump guys that played uh, with T Bone and uh, 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 Wynonie Harris, that kind of thing. Uh, getting closer to the jazz bands, that acoustic bass sound. But then there's the guys that played electric bass. Uh, maybe they started out on second guitar. And then that became a part to play on the electric bass. Right. One of the greatest uh, electric bass players was uh, uh, Jack Myers. He played more of a jazzy, uh, free-flowing style with Bobby mm -hmm. Guy. But uh, Keith Ferguson made a big impression on me, uh, the first bass player with the uh, Thunderbirds. Uh, so did... Uh, Pinky, uh, uh, Preston Hubbard with Room Full of Blues. These guys were already playing before I had really uh, got a full-time gig, you know. So, you know, you talked about the respect and, and the love you had for the old blues guys. And then at a very young age, you wound up playing with a lot of them, like Jimmy Rogers and Big Walter Horton. What did that experience teach you? Well, I don't know. I mean, in one sense, it gave me the confidence to think, you know, I can do this. I can do this. I'm doing it, and I'm doing it okay. Right. Uh, nobody's uh, throwing me off the bandstand or saying <laughs> nasty things, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I felt that uh, I belonged there uh, just as much as anybody else would. And uh, my job was to make the uh, front person sound as good as possible and to uh, pretty much go unnoticed um, in terms of the music, you know, like I right. told you before, I think, like an umpire, if he's doing a good job, you're really not paying that much attention to him. It's when he calls attention to himself, something uh, right. out of the ordinary happened, and it probably wasn't a great thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I understand, I have to understand the song and the genre, you know, uh, what is it? Is it uh, classic 20s style or West Side or uh, what region? Is it jump music? Is it swing? Does it, you know, is it uh, 12 bars even or more? You know, what, what's going on? Uh, uh, my job is to sell the song and the singer. And I, I, I take that very seriously. And to do that, I have to make the changes, play the groove, set a groove, get in the pocket, play to the backbeat, uh, keep the tempo even these you know get a good tone and stick with it don't miss any notes you know keep it keep it rolling and uh, basically you know that's what bass playing is in that that's the role and uh, right. 
I understood that from a, early on. I have to know my shuffles, single noted shuffles, like boom, doom, boom, doom, ba, doom, 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 or double um, ba, doom, 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 ba. I got to determine what I got to do if it's just called off, or if somebody just says, key of E, let's go. One, two, three, four, I have to come in with something and come in with something that I can adapt to what it really ought to be once I quickly understand what am I doing? What are, what are they doing? Right. I mean, with some of these people that I backed up, they wouldn't tell you what key or sometimes, you know, you get a count. Uh, the count's important, you know, uh, the way they count off the song. One, two, three, start, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But a lot of guys will set the groove or the tempo with that. One and a two and a three, you know, like that. Yeah. Or a one, a two, a one, two, three, four. You can hear just where you got to come in and how, how fast or slow. But some people, it's almost like a ready, set, go. You know, it's <laughs> like, a, and here we go, ready. When I count to four, I start. One, two, three, four. No, you know, there's no, there's no evenness or, or, or time set. It's just a, we all start at the same time when I get to four. And that's like a completely different function. And right. that's difficult. But, you know, you got to be able to do that too. Okay, we come in, we have to, if you're really astute as a listener, you will notice, like say when I play with Neil and we're backing up somebody we've never played before, if the person doesn't give us a count or we fall into something that works. And you can hear us sometimes making small adjustments. He might go from his cymbal to his hi-hat. I might... Uh, go from uh, some kind of uh, pattern to a more uh, walking thing or, you know, there's, there's a lot of choices to make. You have to use your brain too and figure out, well, this person's uh, like Big Mama Thornton, what, you know, what's her background musically, you know, or uh, people that I backed up. I mean, wh where are they coming from? You know, right. that, that will help you. Uh, but there's not, uh, just a fast and a slow version of what I do, and that's all I do. I would like to be that kind of player. You know, that was like Elmore James. He had basically the way he played something. If you hired Elmore James, you got Elmore James. He didn't try to play T-bone on a T-bone part. Uh, maybe he could, maybe he couldn't, I don't know. But, I mean, basically you got him. And I would like to be the guy that you get that does what I do. But, you know, in this day... Uh, in my experience, you, I couldn't get away with doing that. Not that I really tried to. But do you, do you think, having played with all those legendary players back then, um, I presume blues is comp quite different now. Even though I think a lot of people try to continue and and um, keep that same tradition uh, going, but do you see things that are no longer there in the blues? Like, does that make sense in terms of question? Like, it does. I, like, I just, I just wonder playing with somebody like Walter Horton or Jimmy Rogers or Muddy Waters or whoever. I, I think they brought a certain sense to, sensibility to the music. Is, is there anything about the blues that used to be there when you started that isn't there anymore? This is a treacherous territory you're stepping into here, <laughs> because. Any, any negative comment, somebody's going to think, you know, it's aimed at them. <laughs> then, uh, will you be mentioning names? No, well, no, kidding. not at all. But uh, just what people 
today do as blues musicians and what people did 30, 40 years ago or 50 years ago as blues musicians, it, it's kind of a different function. And right. there's a different thing going on and there's a different uh, world and backdrop and scenario or environment. I don't know, you know, there's a lot of different things. Uh, the uh, the purpose or the, uh, the uh, way blues worked for both the artist and the, and the audience in, 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 in days gone by, uh, isn't really not, uh, in, in a lot of cases and, you know, relevant to what's going on now. And, and maybe it shouldn't be either. Right. I, I can't really, uh, I don't know. You know, I'm not qualified to answer that, but, right. uh, if you were trying to, uh, make, uh, a minority population that was getting, uh, the short end of the stick in every way possible, uh, in a, northern city where they you know everything was foreign in some ways or difficult or dangerous or what have you and you're just trying to get a break from that kind of life for a single saturday night before you got to go to church on sunday and back to work on monday uh the function of the person that's conducting that kind of service it's almost like a a, a religious thing the uh, bluesman that in his function in that world is very different than uh, somebody that decides, you know, I'm going to uh, be a guitar star because I'm going to be a guitar wizard. And I think my career choices, uh, I see my career path as maybe being more accomplishable in uh, if I win a few blues awards and go down the blues path than if I just compete with every other rock band in the world. You know, right. or something of that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The whole Maybe I, purpose for being is 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 different in a lot of cases. Okay, so I'm wondering if if to rephrase it, is there anything about the blues that you played back then that you missed that doesn't exist today? And it might just be the people, but is there anything that you think about that you think, well, that's not around anymore? Well, there is. Uh, it's, but it's. I, I'm not sure. I even know. I mean, it was always a thrill, such a thrill to play with Otis Rush or look over there and there's, you know, Jimmy Rogers. I mean, that's Jimmy Rogers right there. You know, <laughs> yeah. walking by myself or you know, uh, there he is. He's he's. I'm playing, walking by myself with Jimmy Rogers, or I'm playing uh, any, any other song. You know, Money Marbles and Chaka. These kinds of. Uh, experiences were so thrilling but at the time of doing it you know i'm i'm playing i'm not i don't have time to actually relish much more than just play the gig and have as great a time as that that what's involved with that and then of course after the gig packing up and having a drink packing up and driving to the next place or driving home or, you know uh just hanging, just hanging with Jimmy Rogers. Sometimes he'd bring his wife on the road with us. We'd drive all through Maine in my van, uh, mixing cocktails in the van. And uh, he stayed at my parents' house one time. And, uh, you know, I mean, these kind of things don't don't really, uh, you know, where do you see somebody like Big Joe Turner or mm -hmm. Roosevelt Sykes in your car as you're taking them to the airport or taking them to a gig or something you know to me uh, uh, i mean call it uh, star worshiping or whatever but i i that's how i looked at these musicians mm -hmm. what you know i had to tell big mama thornton you know the club owner's on our ass to 
get on with the second set. Your break has been long enough. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, don't look at me. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> like it was a beautiful thing, but at the same time I was trying to like get, you know, do the uh, club owner's bidding. Right. Uh, so I, I failed in that, but I was, it was great to have her like tell me, Hey, who the hell are you? Oh, you tell me what to do. I'll play when I'm goddamn ready. You know, that's a great um, thing, you know? <laughs> okay. So the other thing is that you have been playing with, um, Ray, Sugar Ray Norcia and um, Neil for a very long time. What's the secret to that? Well, there is, there's no secret really. Uh, I mean, in the old days, I'd say the secret to keeping the band together was that you couldn't have disputes because you had long distance phone calls. Because <laughs> so, it was too expensive. So you would get together at the next gig and would be so glad to see each other and get ready to play. There was never any time to smooth out the uh, different group. <laughs> but as time got went on, I mean, you have to understand. I mean, we didn't have cell phones. We had to stop at pay phones to tell the club owner we're late or we're lost. or We had to uh, survive uh, VCRs. That was a huge thing when tapes first came out and people started watching movies at home. Uh, the drinking age shifted a bunch of times. It went up to 21 from 18. We lost the college age crowd. Uh, this is all on our watch. Uh, disco came in. That really hurt us. Uh, the uh, uh, people wanted to dance to records. Uh, the clubs started putting carpeting over everything and muffling everything and playing uh, records with a DJ real loud. That hurt us. We used to play weddings, you know, and functions. And, uh, and then people would start hiring one guy, pay one right. guy with his records. Uh, this was all uh, obstacles. Uh, the drinking and driving, that was a huge, uh, huge uh, uh, curtailment of customers as well as the drinking age. You know what I'm saying? People showed yeah. up to, 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 to the gigs. Live music uh, took a couple of hits with uh, DVDs and uh, videos. Videos changed things. Uh, you couldn't just go with that uh, cassette tape of Little Walter and try to get a gig or... Uh, it didn't matter that you played at the bottom line with uh, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells. They, uh, so what, you know? I mean, uh, it didn't matter that you did this or that. Uh, it almost doesn't matter now. So in some ways, uh, Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones, you, you, you might see us as survivors, but uh, we're actually uh, not at, not, not uh, you know, hooking up with all the biggest festivals that they have today because our style of music isn't all that popular. And we're not the kind of spectacle that uh, somebody young and uh, that can jump around or, uh, well, I, I, it's entertainment. So I'm not saying any, nothing, der not derogating uh, anyone that can entertain a crowd, but the uh, old style music, people think that's just slow and dull, which it's not. But uh, the reputation for uh, musicianship is not uh, what you th might think. It doesn't really matter that I... Uh, recorded with Big Walter Horton or Jimmy Rogers or something like that. It right. doesn't really matter that I uh, played in Europe or, uh, you know, played all these festivals or backed up all these people. I played with Buddy Guy and Junior Wells when uh, they make, each guy got 500 bucks and the band got 500 bucks. The, the entire backup band got five. So it was a $1,500 package right. that went to the bottom line in New York. And, uh, we had to pay our gas and uh, the truck and all that stuff out of our 500 
but that was you know we were glad to do it it was exciting um i can tell you stories about doing it but uh you know it's just that doesn't translate for me getting a gig today you know and uh sugar rain the Butones, we have a record coming out well it's been in the can for uh, over a year with little charlie Beatty, who just passed away right and uh now that that record has been held up for so long and between all this virus uh, closings of live venues, I mean, I don't know that that record's going to uh, translate into uh, uh, being a key to get us into some more, you know, war, uh, festivals to play and that kind of thing, you know? I mean, the, the whole club scene is, is completely different than it was 40 years ago. You used to be able to live broke. That's one thing. With, with little money, you could still right. afford cigarettes and drinks and, and go to places. And really, I mean, you didn't have much income, but you could still live. That changed. That's one thing that changed big time. And another thing is uh, live music used to be real important. It used to be uh, something that uh, people had to have. And uh, I'm not sure that that's still the case, or even if it is the case, I'm not sure people really uh, appreciate that it's the case. Right. Did you, I mean, I, I would presume, knowing your passion for music, that you probably never thought about not doing music. Well, did you? No, but I, you know, I'm one of the few guys, or maybe not few, but I've maintained some kind of day job. Right. Through all a lot of this, I, I work in a hospital as a uh, in the graphic arts department as a printer. Right. So I'm, you know, I'm, I have health insurance. <laughs> yeah. Basically, is what I have. Uh, but uh, no, if I if I had to stop playing, uh, you know, that's basically that. That's what that's that's what I'm interested in doing still, as much as I was when I was back in 1969, where you know. I'm interested in playing, and I apparently uh, other people still find me interesting to some degree. I, I uh, won my second uh, blues uh, blues music award this year. Exactly, and, and then you won the other one like two years ago, right? I did. Uh, so uh, some some somebody somewhere still thinks I'm relevant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the other thing that you did was write a book about Alison Tarzan Brown. Where did that come from? Okay, well, go right back to Neil Gouven and riding around in those vans on the way to those long gigs. You know, we used to drive from here to uh, Chicago and uh, or Indiana and uh, back to, uh, uh, you know, say Newport or New England and then go back. You know, I mean, the routing was never the greatest thing. And we <laughs> right. spent a lot of time, a lot of time riding around together. Now, in the latter part of the uh, world, we, uh, I, those guys still live down in uh, Rhode Island, and I still live in, the, in Cambridge in the Boston area. So we pretty much meet at gigs in a, whether, most of the time. But, right. but uh, in the days when we were still riding around in a van, you know, after you talk about women and uh, just, you know, saying your hellos and everything after the first, <laughs> first 45 or 50 minutes, uh, you know, you, you have to, you know, and, and music, you, you, you come across other things to talk about. And they grew up in an area in Westerly, Rhode Island, where Tarzan Brown was still alive and well. He was a Native American runner. And they would see him in bars drinking or challenging people to chew a shot glass or <laughs> uh, 
running around with a quart of milk going home and tell me these stories about this guy, Tarzan Brown, that had supposedly won the Boston Marathon more than once. And I, uh, I'd never heard of him. And I lived in Boston. I wasn't really a big running fan of marathon. Uh, I didn't pay that much attention to it. But they told me about this guy who would, uh, you know, run without shoes or, or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And uh, I kind of didn't believe him, but I did. But these funny stories, how he'd be in a bar drinking, someone would challenge him to a race. He'd run, he'd stop in a bar, watch out the window, you know, and then at the last minute, he could put the jets on and beat somebody. Well, it turned out I went to the Boston Library and looked in the uh, microfiche and all the Boston papers. There were quite a few of them back in the 30s and 40s. And I got very interested in, in him, and I wrote a book about him. And uh, m mostly from talking to his wife and, and the newspaper accounts of him, which were extremely racist, you know, Indian scalps another at a race of that kind of headlines, you know, right. um, goes on the war path and all that kind of stuff. But uh, very interesting, uh, uh, kind of a sad story, but uh, a very, very full story. You know, uh, Tarzan Brown was in the Olympics in uh, 39 when uh, Hitler hosted them and being black skinned, he was arrested and uh, detained and, you know, a lot of stuff happened, you know. What, what did you learn from that experience of writing the book? Well, one thing I learned right off was pick a subject that has a that's in the indexes, you know, indices. Uh, <laughs> only the New York Times and uh, one other uh, paper had indexed all the subject matter from the twenties, thirties, and forties. So, if I, you know, races are not like baseball where there's a schedule. Or even like football, where you know it's every Sunday, right. or, or something like that. Uh, some towns would have a race if they want the merchants wanted somebody to you know to, to bring some crowd downtown and make some money. Uh, now they had a race in Boston every Patriots Day, and they had a Thanksgiving Day race in Pennsylvania every year. But mostly the races were just uh, you know you had to look in the paper to find out when they were, hmm. and. Uh, that took a lot of searching, and without an index, oh man, I had to go through all the sports pages of all those papers for a good uh, twenty-year period, uh, just flip flipping through the sheets of, of you know on the microfiche and look for the word brown, and like oh there it is, no that's uh, that's the Cleveland <laughs> Cleveland Browns, oh there it is, no that's the St. Louis Browns, oh there it is, no that's Cunningham Brown, he was another guy that ran, you know, until I could find oh Tarzan Brown, you know. And uh, so that was like a lot of research that I didn't expect, but I'm glad um, I enjoyed it. But but have you, okay, have you thought about writing anything else? Like, what prompted you to start, other than being intrigued by your your car conversations? Well, you I, know, did, what, I did want to prove uh, one way or the other if I could prove some of the folklore, you know to be either either possibly true or clearly not true or really somebody else did that, you know, somebody else jumped in a lake uh, in the middle of a race or, you know, whatever, you know, but, but I learned a lot about that. Uh, just, this is a little bit of an aside, but, you know, back then, first of all, the Boston Marathon, they didn't stop the traffic on the, on the track, you know, the, the street. So <laughs> really? You had to run through cars and everything. Now the guys that started at the beginning, 
had a better shot because there were a few police motorcycles and everything leading the way. Right. But the, the stragglers definitely had to, you know, fight traffic. And it was smoky cars making a lot of noise and really polluted. Uh, Tarzan ran a lot of races that were like 10K or shorter, you know, five-mile races. And his way of working was he would run four miles on a five-mile race or nine miles on a 10-mile race, laying back so he could see everybody, and then in the last mile make the difference. Well, sometimes the races weren't even measured out correctly, the courses. So one time he ran a Bunker Hill race. It was a 10-mile race, and he should have won, but the race was only 9.7 miles. And, uh, you know, the, the, the finish line came up faster than it should have. And so, uh, he, you know, he got screwed on it. But what I was about to say before that even, uh, and the traffic, was they would handicap him because he was a good fast runner, which meant, I, I mean, it's hard to believe they didn't even do this with people, but they would uh, hold him back for a minute or two and then let him start after everybody else started to make it fairer because he was fast. Wow. Which... Even if you bought, buy that kind of handicapping, you know, if you accept that, it meant that by the time he was finally allowed to go, there were all the slow guys at the end of the race in his way that he had to work around, plus more traffic, you know? So it was, like, completely unfair, and he would still usually win those kind of races. Wow. Did you ever think about writing another book? <laughs> I haven't really thought about it, no. So it was just a one. And was it difficult to get a publisher? Well, that's uh, kind of interesting, too. Uh, I didn't really think about all that until I had this Native American mag uh, newspaper. And in it, I saw this advertisement for a book on uh, Saka, Saka, Saka Lexus, I think his name was, the first okay. Cleveland Indian, a baseball player from the turn of the century. Oh, it was a book okay. about him. Uh, that's an interesting story, too. And... Uh, he uh, the, so I looked at the publisher, and uh, I looked it up, and there were three books about this guy. One was a pub, and I looked at the publisher publishers. One was a like a calendar publisher, so that wouldn't help me much. One was a like a a, a textbook publisher, and the other was uh, well, the book was like a serious biography, like what I thought I was writing. So I wrote to them. That was McFarland, and. Uh, they accepted my book right away. Wow. Well, I hadn't really even understood that they were more of an academic type of publisher. So immediately what that meant was uh, they were going to say my book was 35 bucks. I couldn't have any say about that. I thought that was really too steep for the people I was trying to reach. And right. uh, it was only going to be uh, mostly uh, mail order and at... Uh, you know, college bookstores wasn't really going to be in uh, Barnes and Noble. I mean, it's on Amazon, and and it was on the Barnes and Noble uh, Barnes and Noble uh, website, but it it wasn't really a commercial publisher. Right. It's still in print, but uh, I you know I didn't know that much about it. But it was a positive experience to do this? Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I published a book and uh, I got to go around. I got invited to a few of the Boston Marathon uh, dinners that they had uh, where they give the uh, first three numbers to the first three guys that were successful the year before. It's kind of like a uh, 
three days before the race. It's kind of like a pep talk, and uh, you meet, right. you meet the stars of yesteryear. You know, I interviewed uh, uh, players, uh, runners from the '40s that were still alive, and that was fun. John uh, John Kelly, the elder, who uh, was kind of like Tarzan's main competition. And John Kelly, the younger, no relation, who won in the 60s, I got him to write my introduction. Oh. So, uh, you know, it was an interesting uh, another world for me. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm going to have to wrap this up, but I want to thank you. Let me ask you one final question. Tell me what's the greatest thing you learned from music? I have no idea what that would be. <laughs> um, music is a great thing. It's a language. It's a, it's a thought process. It's a lot of different things. It's just air vibrations. It's, um, it's an activity. It's, uh, I don't even understand it, to tell you the truth. You know, it's very confusing. What is it? And, you know, where is it? And, uh, you know, making music and making records are kind of separate entities. Uh, when they started recording in the first, uh, when recording equipment became available in the early days, it was basically to document, to document right. somebody doing something, uh, capturing it, just like you would a photograph. You could capture, you know, what you saw. You could record what you heard, and then some, and you could make a record and play it back. Then it became, no, the record is the product. You can make records to sell. That's not capturing anything. That's creating something. Right. to do something with it's a different thing altogether you know uh blues kind of crosses both those uh areas in different ways and uh live you know from the beginning of recorded sound to uh and performances you know i mean everything is everything is one big uh watered down experience today uh i think in in, in jazz and blues and art and uh in 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 a lot of things Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not a positive thing exactly for a guy in my position. But, uh, you know, who's to say uh, people didn't always feel that way, you know? Well, I mean, when I look at your discography, it's pretty impressive, the amount of recordings you've been involved in. Well, I wasn't lucky to be at a lot of them. Uh, some of them just fell in my lap, and others, uh, you know, people wanted me for what I do. and. Right. uh that's uh, a bass player really doesn't, uh, in a lot of cases, there are exceptions, Mingus and Willie Dixon and so forth. But in a lot of cases, you know, it's a it's a side man and it's a rhythm section guy that, uh, uh, you know, it seems like uh, when I do uh, not win the uh, Blues Bass Player Award, it's because the bass player actually is a front man, uh, somebody that sings or is a band leader, uh, somebody that... Uh, Nicole or uh, Biscuit Miller or something like that. You know, these people are really, they happen to be bass players and good ones, but they, that's not their thing. You know, their thing is uh, the, the front man, they're, they're seen, you know, they're known. Yeah. Um, that's, that's not the same. We're, we're in different games, but it's, it's one, it's one prize, but we're in different games really. Well, I think it speaks volumes that you've actually won more than once and nominated God knows how many times. Well, it, it is, uh, you know, it's an honor and I appreciate it. It's recognition for something I do. I like that. But then again, you know, uh, it's not baseball where 
this guy had this average and that guy had that average this guy clearly had a better year yeah. I hit more home runs than that guy in his career had a better career in home runs in music there's no uh, equivalent uh, uh, um, you know objective uh, qu quantifying so the awards thing is you know hard to hard to fathom well you're still one of my favorite bass players well thank you you're one of my favorite uh, <laughs> whatever music filmmakers how about that well, thank you so much for doing this. I, you know, you've been very supportive from the moment I met you. I've, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a very long time. We've had many baseball discussions, and hopefully we'll continue to do so. Uh, but I appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much for asking me, Marco, and uh, continued success to you. Thank you. Thank you.